0: you're listening to the technology for mindfulness podcast episode 19 hosted by me robert plotkin today i'm going to be speaking with dr katherine steiner adair an internationally recognized clinical psychologist school consultant and award-winning author of the big disconnect protecting childhood and family relationships in the digital age which examines how today's technology and media change how children learn and grow, and explains how parents and educators can reap the benefits of technology while reducing the risks it poses to children at every stage of their development. We're extremely pleased to welcome Dr. Catherine Steiner Adair to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. In today's episode of the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, Dr. Katherine Steiner Adair will focus on the ways in which young people use technology and the impacts of that technology use on their mental development, on their relationships, on how they learn, and on a variety of other aspects of their lives. One thing in particular that she mentions when speaking to parents is the availability of tools such as Circle, enabling parents to exercise control over how and when and where their children use their smartphones and other devices and to monitor that usage. I'm not going to get into the details of or promote any particular product, but I do want to take the time now to talk in general about the availability of a wide variety of apps that parents can use to exercise and set and enforce some limits on how and when and where their children can use their devices. The reason I want to point it out is not to promote some kind of Dictatorial style of parenting, but really instead to raise awareness of the options that are out there. And in part, because I think there's a common misperception, not just among parents, but among people in general, that we have no choice but to accept our smartphones for everything that they can do or to not use them at all, and that there's no middle ground, that we either have to suffer through them interrupting us at all times, or we have to turn them off and put them away. Whereas in reality, there's a variety of ways in which we can configure our smartphones, even without installing any extra software on them. And there's also a variety of apps out there, Circle being among them, that we can use to exercise some control over how the smartphones are used. And I say that this is not just for parents because you might want to use an app to exercise some control over how you yourself <laughs> use your own smartphone. You may not trust yourself. I certainly don't always trust myself you know, not to use my smartphone at certain times. And I often find it easier to set limits using an app or the phone's own built-in settings so that when I am at a moment of low willpower (laughs) during the day, I don't have to rely on my willpower in that moment to not answer the phone or not respond to a message. Uh, I can instead rely on the phone as I've configured it, to not bother me or to just nudge me in the right direction. So if you are someone who finds yourself frustrated or feeling like there's nothing you can do for yourself or for your children or other family members, be aware that you actually can take more control over that technology. You don't have to resign yourself to all or nothing. You actually can do things like set up the phone so that it cannot be used to send or receive text messages while driving. You can set up the phone so that it cannot be used to send or receive any messages during certain hours of the day or while at certain locations. There's pretty wide variety of options out there so that you don't have to live with an all-or-nothing approach to technology, but instead you can tailor how your own devices and devices of your family members work to suit your own needs and preferences and values better. With that being said, I'll turn to my interview with Dr. Catherine Steiner-Adair. Hi, Dr. Steiner, there and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Thank you. It's really great to have you here. And I'd like to talk about the work that you specialize in uh, relating to uh, children and use of technology. I mean, today, children seem to be glued to screens of all kinds all of the time. And wondering if you can talk a bit about, um, starting with how that has changed over the years, and particularly because you've been doing this kind of work for a very long time.
1: Well, one of the biggest changes I see and one of the most frequent questions I get from parents, the question is, what's the right age to give your child a smartphone? And one of the biggest changes I see is that children are being given fully loaded computers, i.e. smartphones, um, at an increasingly younger age. When I started doing research for the book, there was pretty much a consensus that, you know, eighth grade or ninth grade was the age at which kids should get a fully loaded smartphone. And now, depending on where I am, I travel all over the country working in different kinds of schools and um with kids and parents and educators. I've seen Places where it's not uncommon for third or fourth graders to have fully loaded smartphones. So I think that's a big difference. And with more and more people having phones, we've developed very different cultural norms, some just within the last five years that are really changing how we connect to each other.
0: So what kind of a difference does that make? You know, For example, what kind of changes do you see in children's behavior, or attitudes, or development as a result of them having this access to smartphones at a younger age?
1: Well, we see all sorts of, of differences. If, you, um, if a child comes home from school and is in the habit constantly of playing a game, regardless of the kind of game. You know, obviously a good Minecraft game for some kids is a lot better than Candy Crush, but even Mm -hmm. Minecraft can cause challenges for some kids. What we see in children, particularly if they're given, um, their parents' smartphones in the checkout line or in the car, is that we see a decline in their capacity for self-soothing, for, uh, frustration. We see an increase in impulsivity. We see a uh, decrease in their ability for one of the most important things we want to see in young children, which is the capacity for deep play. And what deep play means is the ability to, you know, be playing a game like dress up or something, and you come to a, a point where your narrative is run out, and you dive deeper into your little imagination and come up with another idea. You pick up a, you know, a pot and a pan and turn into a, you know, a helmet or a sword or something, whatever it is. And there's a enormous difference between playing something as simple as dress up in the real world and playing it online. And when you play it online, you actually delete all the incredibly important and rich neurological, educational, psychosocial uh, tools that kids develop when they play. And, you know, we see significant differences between children who play a lot on sitting on a couch using just mm. their index finger, not developing fine motor coordination. We've seen a big spike in OT referrals in four, five, and six-year-olds at school who need more occupational therapy because they're not actually just using their hand to build with real Legos or button buttons or, you know, lace things up. And we see, uh, you know, just certain deficits that when you stand back and think about it, it makes a lot of sense.
0: So you talked about a couple of the deficits being physical. Uh, what other kinds of deficits, mental or emotional or relational, might result from these changes?
1: You know, when, when you play, let, let me stick with dress up because it's a fun example. When you play dress up with yourself and you're, you are telling yourself a story, you're making up a story in your own little head. And that's a wonderfully rich thing for preliteracy and creative writing. And we see for children who play in the real world and we re- are read to by adults with real books, a uh, much better language enriched uh, entry point at nursery school or kindergarten. When you play dress up with a friend, unlike when you play it on an iPad, you learn how to co create. And, it, you know, in school, we talk about partner based learning and project based learning. Well, this is the beginnings of. Developing the social and emotional tools to be able to do that, you learn how to share, you learn how to discuss together what way the story is going to go. When you um, also play dress up in real life, you things go wrong. You know your your boa slips off, or you know something <laughs> happens. This is true when you're building a fort too, versus building on Minecraft. You just can't hit a button that says reset. Mm. You have to build up. And that takes time and it takes patience. So we see kids, when they play in the real world, developing a a very important tool for learning, which is the capacity to deal with frustration and disappointment. And what we see with kids who play a lot of games online is that they don't have as strong a capacity to both self-regulate, which means calm yourself down, and try and try and try again. So those are pretty important um developmental milestones and tools that you want your children to develop. And of course, there are other things too. When you play a game like dress up online, you are playing in uh, a realm that has some of the worst gender and racial stereotypes. And, you know, And I, I guarantee you any king or queen or princess or dragon slayer or inventor or whatever your kids would make up on their own and outfit on their own would be more imaginative and creative than pushing, you know, red stilettos or green sparkly stilettos, you know, like that. And so when when the, the magic of the iPad starts to replace the magic of playing in the real world, we see some real fallout for kids.
0: You've already addressed a bit of the next question I'm going to ask, but I want to play a little bit of devil's advocate and raise sure. some arguments. I'm sure you've heard many times, maybe even from parents, and maybe there are some parents out there who have said these things to themselves. You know, one, one I've heard is, well, compared to television in the old days, 50s through the 90s, which which was very passive for children, Right. the online world is meant to be very interactive and therefore yep. does encourage a kind of creativity and engagement that was lacking from previous generations and therefore would encourage all kinds of cognitive and social development.
1: Mm-hmm. There's no question that, um, you know, game playing and, and, and just being online It can be phenomenally enriching for kids. I'm not saying it's always bad. I'm saying it's a question of degree and how much and where and what the content is. You know, when it comes to the comparison between TV and playing, having your child, you know, play online, there are several differences. Um, You know, when you play a handheld game, every time, and even if it's an educational one, like let's say you're matching lowercase a to uppercase a your child will learn the difference between lowercase and uppercase A. But every time they get it correct, they usually get like butterflies or Mm. whistles, you know, or sparkles. And those rewards are actual stimulants to their brain. So every time they do something right, they get these stimulants and the human brain craves stimulants. So there's while on the positive side they're of course learning certain things that are wonderful the negative side is that they're being fed stimulants and and kids crave stimulants it's one of the reasons that they love computers so much we all crave stimulants we all have a very hard time ignoring the ping on our phone which is a stimulant to our brain and so you know that You have to weigh some of the the yays and nays. If what your child needs, you know, if it's a rainy day and they've been indoors all day and they need something really engaging and something that's really intellectually more stimulating or interactive and creative and, you know, they're into creating good stuff online, then let them do that. But if what you want your kids to do is have downtime, And give their brains a break from the intensity of the neurological interaction with fast-paced games. Let them watch a good video on TV. You know, there's great content on both devices. One of the biggest differences is that TV is more relaxing. And TV occurs, usually unless you're watching Looney Tunes, the way people talk and interact is at the pace of human interaction. It's not so fast. And TV allows you to process along with it at a slower pace. And you know, sometimes we fall asleep in front of a TV. Mm-hmm. We rarely fall asleep unless you're, you know, been gaming for three days in front of a, you know, playing Candy Crush. So, and the other things that are, you know, worthy of noting, uh, TV doesn't produce the same kind of eye strain on kids, and it doesn't produce the same kind of, um, you know. Uh, computer neck or whatever you want to call it you know mm-hmm. physically it's it's a very it's different your kids aren't sitting at a computer for two or three hours hunched over uh, a screen but there certainly are times where playing at a game on the computer is a great thing or pursuing a hobby or learning more about something you love is on on a computer is a fabulous thing to do it's a question of how much and what and where and when.
0: Well, that's a great way to, to get into that discussion. If it's not really either or choosing you know, television versus a screen, other kinds of screens or no, no technology at all, uh, I'm sure parents and educators want to know well. How do we then strike a balance? I mean, I know that's a very complicated question, but I wonder if you could start to answer that or give some ideas for, in different contexts, how to try to strike that balance over time for children as they develop.
1: Well, I, you know, as they develop, I myself am a fan of only using um, computers or smartphones for face chatting with children. Um, or some of the really good slow paced animal uh, videos and, you know, the things that are similar to Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers. And when kids are little, I think that playing in the real world just can't be beat. Although I think Skyping with your grandchildren is divine. <laughs> uh, I'm a huge fan. So um, the biggest thing, honestly, to think about is each child individually. Because one of the things that we see a huge variance with is how different children and different kids' wiring interacts with being on computers. There are some kids who could leave it or take it. They do it at school. They come home. They're not running to their family laptop or you know an ipad there are other kids who are racing through their homework to be able to play minecraft or get online and you know run a raid on their game whatever it is or go on snapchat and check their streak whatever it is one of the most important things is to really understand your child's wiring and how they emotionally toggle on and toggle off and if you have a kid who loves, loves, loves gaming and, in fact, is very good at it, um, that's a more challenging situation than the kid who can, you know, leave it or take it. And it's it's really important to pay attention to your your child's whole what they love about it and how much they dysregulate when they get off of technology or stop gaming. Uh, you know, I was really challenged and and started thinking about this issue way before the book. When my son was in seventh grade and got Windows ninety eight, and uh, he was a very talented gamer, and it took me a long time to figure out how to raise a talented gamer without him becoming addicted to gaming, make sure he still had a soul and a sweetness mm-hmm. to him that that didn't get deleted because he was such a good gamer. And had it also take advantage and, and nurture what was clearly a talent that he had that's, you know, a very valuable one in this day and age. He works in the gaming industry right now.
0: Well, then, uh, what was the magic answer that you found <laughs> well, to that question? <laughs>
1: so, several. <laughs> after many meltdowns and arguments, you know, I honestly, as a parent, I would vacillate and you know I wasn't easy either because on the one hand I was so proud of you know this acumen that he had in this brave new world and it brought him a lot of social capital he could help his teachers and he could help his friends and he could this was in the days where you could beat a game you know and he beat I forget what what command and conquer one of those games and you know that was pretty exhilarating and cool and then I'd flip to the other side like this game is destroying my son i'm terrified he's going to get addicted Because I'm trained both as a developmental and clinical psychologist, I was very aware that there was something powerful going on between his brain and the computer, but there was no research then, which is part of why I wanted to write the book, because now there's a lot of research, and we really need to pay attention to it. So here are some of the things that we found to be helpful. Um, Depending on your child, what I would say is... A day on, a day off of gaming or no gaming at all, Monday through Thursday, because that's the school week and we do schoolwork. You decide what works best for you. And then I sought out robotics teams for him to compete on. And that was fabulous. He was on a multi-age robotics team team. Where he was the young kid, there was a college age, there was a graduate student and, you know, a couple of adults. They got to compete. They went to Disney World. That was thrilling. So just being around other people who were coding and creating content and being in a multi-generational sort of design thinking uh, space was wonderful for him. By the time he was in 11th or 12th grade, I think maybe perhaps both, His school couldn't offer him classes, but what they did do is they asked him to teach computer sciences to middle school students. So that was another way of sort of channeling this in a pro-social and give-back and instructional sort of academic-y kind of of way. We also made sure that um, in the summer, he had several weeks in the wilderness completely off and away from all devices. That was also really important. And we would, you know, try and punctuate the week also with family time for all of us off screens, which I'm a huge fan of. And um, I think for kid kids today, the more you can take advantage of vacations and especially summer vacations and put yourselves as a family or certainly your children in a context where they will be with other kids having a blast you know, Daniel went to one of those uh, wonderful, um, canoeing camp, uh, in Vermont, Key Laden, where they would go out in the wilderness for several weeks. I mean, you develop such rich friendships and you reconnect with yourself and nature and the stars and your soul. And, and you also give your brain a very necessary break. And we know every day we need to give our brains a break. I didn't let kids play on their screens in the car because that's not good for you on your way to school. You want to just stare out the window, let your brain rest, deal with your anticipatory anxiety, prepare yourself for school. If you play Candy Crush, you'll arrive at school coming off a stimulant. You won't be as pro-social. You'll be a little more agitated, uh, have a harder time settling down. And we try and create uh, I recommend for families for sure that you have some tech-free zones in your house the dinner table's an obvious one although surprising how hard that is for many families to maintain um and then I would also recommend that you have take your living room or you know some room and have that be a place where no screens of any kind are welcome because if you're sitting around the living room or you're playing monopoly you know we were a family played a lot of card games and board games One person picks up the phone, or then suddenly everybody else is reaching for theirs because stimulants have a contagious effect, and it's really hard to resist. You know, first you feel annoyed when (laughs) somebody, whether it's, you know, me doing it or, or one of my kids picking up, taking a call, and then suddenly everybody else is doing it. And so you really have to work much harder today to protect times for family connection as well as connection with yourself
0: mm. I'm just curious to know uh whether you found that it was uh you as a parent who were primarily doing taking the lead on that, or did there come a point at which your kids were also uh you know managing themselves more? Did you find that they internalized this over time, and I'm making some assumption that in the beginning. And maybe I'm wrong. That in the beginning they resisted.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, they they definitely resisted, and we came up with you know ways of trying to make it more appealing. But um, then then things sort of flipped, and and there have been many times where our kids have called us out and said, "Hey, what are you doing?" Yeah, <laughs> I remember one Thanksgiving vacation, um, I had scheduled a work call, and I knew we were going to be in the car, and they were like, "What's up with that?" you know don't be a hypocrite so what did you do (laughs) i I rescheduled it (laughs) you know they were right fortunately it was the kind of thing i I could reschedule so i am no saint i think you know it's very very hard to self-regulate with all this stuff
0: and now let's talk about how hard it is to do when you know your family isn't an island obviously i mean how do you deal with the fact that other kids are Being raised or in different ways, or your kids are facing other influences when it comes to technology, how did you deal with that?
1: This is a huge thing. You know, we had to deal with this with TV and movies too. You know, would I let my kids go to a birthday party where they were going to watch an X-rated movie? That came up. You know, so there, there are always going to be situations where um, your family values are going to conflict with other family values. And what this is particularly hard around the question of giving your kids in middle school fully loaded smartphones or access to Snapchat or Instagram or Facebook, all of which have a 13-year-old age requirement. Um, and I think what you really have to figure out is what kind of childhood you want your kids to have, what you think they are capable of handling socially um and uh where you come down on the value of uh crafting if you will a sequenced uh, approach to adulthood versus just you know handing kids access to the entire adult world in fifth grade or sixth grade and and most of all what kinds of sort of social and emotional and cognitive, if you will, or neurological development you want to foster for your children. You know, it's very hard. Parents have a very hard time setting good limits. There's a wonderful new app out that, you know, is is, um, uh, sort of a parental dream come true called The Circle, which Disney owns. So you get, you know, Disney ads and stuff. But the circle is is great because it allows you to see every single and set and establish who your kids can text, what time they can do what, what websites they're on, what they have access to. It, it gives parents more control than any other um, app I'm aware of. Um, maybe you're aware of a, another one. But I think that one of the biggest mistakes parents make is when kids say, but everybody else has it. Let's say your child's in fifth grade or sixth grade. And if you cave to the idea that because everybody else's child has it, you're basically saying several things to your children. One is that you don't believe they can withstand peer pressure, which is not the message you want to give kids because soon everybody else is going to have weed or alcohol or, you know, whatever else. And also, you're telling them you don't have faith in their ability to still be connected to their friends and have a good time and not uh have um, you know what everybody else has and you're also sort of you know one of the best things we do for our children when we do set limits that perhaps not other families have is it gives them a very strong sense of their family and you know all the research on what makes kids take risks or if, have better self-esteem, come round to parents who set good limits based on their values and explain to their children why they're doing what they're doing. And it's the transparency and the explaining that's so important. And, you know, there are so many phones out there, aside from smartphones, for children. If, if If you want your kids to be able to text four or five of their friends, you can limit a phone like that if you want them just to be able to text you. There are kid phones that don't have access to the entire World Wide Web. You know, you can put all sorts of restrictions on a phone.
0: Yeah, it's another way it sounds like in which you're encouraging people to not succumb to the idea that they have to choose all or nothing, that there are some middle grounds out there.
1: There there are some middle grounds, but I, I you know, I'm a fan of the wait till eight movement. I mean, your kids can have a phone; they can have a flip phone, but I think I think it's it's not a wise thing to let children go on sites that they are too young for legally, and it's not a wise thing for parents to tell their kids they're special and we're going to break the law. Mm. And I think it's um, a good thing to have a pace at which children grow up and enter the adult world. And you know, there's once. If if kids really want to, I mean, I certainly know plenty of seventh and eighth graders who have all sorts of accounts. Their parents are clueless of. You know, they say, "Okay, here's my Instagram account," but they have a finsta, they have a fake insta. You know, mm-hmm. so, and and it's pretty tiresome to try and stay on top of all of this, and most people don't even know, you know, how to begin to stay on top of it all. So I think there are many things to think about. But the one thing I will say is whenever you get your child a phone or, you know, it's not just a phone. They can do stuff on Chromebooks. They can do it on, you know, iTouch. They can do it on their laptop. Um, make sure you have a family contract and an understanding about what this is for and what it is not for. Taking embarrassing pictures, starting rumors, pretending to be somebody you're not, and what the consequences will be. When you mess up, and just assume your kids are going to mess up there works in progress, we all mess up, but really have a an ongoing dialogue about here's what it's for, here's what it's not for, here are family values and and we're going to check up on you and make sure that you're using this appropriately.
0: yeah, this is a really great set of suggestions for parents. we've been talking so far mostly about. Uh, the perspective of parents raising kids, and I know that you also do a lot of work directly with schools. You know, kids spend what what percentage of their waking lives at school?
1: <laughs> uh, they spend more percentage on screens than anything else
0: right
1: now. Sleep, <laughs> and and you know they did, so they spent, you know I don't know five six hours a day at school, mm-hmm. and. um that's been a huge change, the way kids experience school. I mean, it's changed in so many ways. And the experience of going to school is completely flipped from when we went to school.
0: What are the challenges that you find uh, professionals at school, teachers, principals, other other professionals there? And, you know, what, what are you finding are the big challenges now that you're being asked to help them with?
1: Well, you know, everybody was all excited about all the, the very real advantages of being able to use technology in a classroom and Chromebooks that go home and doing research, you know, online. And I think everybody sort of fell in love without having the research or um, any awareness of the downside that we might run up against. And right now, most people are struggling with serious questions about how to reset Reboot, how they use technology in school. Some of the typical questions and things I help schools look at are, what's the right amount of screen time in this class, in this child's day for homework? What kind of work is best done off a device? You know, we don't read on an iPad the same way we read from a book. We don't learn when we are keep notes as well as when we handwrite certain kinds of notes. So then, I mean, we have all sorts of research now to know that you have, we have to be much more focused and differentiated in how we use technology. Something as simple as just having your phone on your desk at home or in the classroom will undermine your capacity to pay attention. And obviously the you know the issues of if kids are on their own devices and this can happen it's whether it's a school device too, depending on what kind of limits school's place and what the device is. you know how do you know a kid's not a j crew or um you know texting the kid next to them in class and that's a huge problem and we have a big problem with parents who email and text their kids during the day, which you should never do. It's distracting, often it gets them in trouble it leads to them feeling anxious. you know let your children have their school day. One of the good things about school is you're away from your parents for a couple of hours. (laughs) And, you know, it's not good for parents either because your child texts you. They're all upset. Their math teacher did this. Their English teacher did that. Then your day gets hijacked, too, because you're worrying about your child and you don't see the recovery that happens. And or when you get involved, you're depriving your child of one of the most important things they need to learn at school and that is how to go up to the teacher and say i'm really disappointed or this isn't fair how to advocate for themselves you know teachers are so good at helping children express themselves when they're upset and you don't want to deprive your kids of the opportunity to learn how to advocate for themselves and benefit from that aspect of you know having relationships with their teachers other things like Using your phone in, in the cafeteria, should devices be in cafeterias? What about in the hallways? Uh, what about on the quad at school? What about parents using their devices in the hallways? These are all things that are up for grabs and being reconsidered re, um, because of research.
0: Are we at the point yet where there's any confident conclusions being drawn from this research about what the best practices are? And let's oh, it yeah. within schools.
1: Sure. So there's a school um in New York City, one of, you know, they're they're one of the, the top girls' schools in New York City, read the big disconnect and read some of the research on the impact of smartphones in terms of distraction and social distraction and FOMO, fear of missing out and anxiety. And they decided that there's actually no reason whatsoever for girls, whether they're in kindergarten or all the way through 12th grade, to have a phone with them during the school day that is distracting, that it will undermine their learning. And so they, you know, based on the research, sent a letter out to their students and their parents explaining why they are going to ask their girls, their students. Um, and this is very highly rigorous, wonderfully connected in terms of teachers and students school in, in New York City girls school to not have their phones on them during the day. And, and you know, more and more schools are, are coming to either the same conclusion um, or if there's a class where for some reason, and sometimes there is a reason, students use technology in the classroom. They have one of those shoe bags, you know, where you put your phone in your shoe bag and then you take it out. When we're going to use it for academic purposes, but it goes back in the shoe bag rather than back on your desk, rather than back under your desk where you can text without being seen by your teacher. <laughs> um, you know, so, so these are really big changes. And, and what's so hard about it? And, and Robert, you know, my heart goes out to teachers. I was a teacher. I was a, I taught at Phillips Academy Andover. I was a school psychologist there. You know, Especially when you're working with adolescents, it's so hard to strike that balance between being a teacher and being sort of a, a a coach and mentor and also having to set limits. And one of the things teachers say that they really hate is having to be like the the tech police. And I think that more and more when I work with schools, schools are developing ways of engaging parents. So everybody's on the same page. And everybody has the same understanding. And when you have a school responsible use contract and parents come to school and talk about it and sign it with you and you know, things like in middle school. If your kids come home from middle school with a Chromebook or a school iPad, more and more schools are putting in the responsible use agreement that parents will collect the device at nine o'clock or 930 or whatever time you pick. And this is so helpful to everybody. It's helpful because all the kids can't say, but everybody else is online. And it teaches them time management because they can't do their homework until 10, 30 or 11 and be on two or three devices at once. And it helps them learn how to focus and get their homework done without distraction, which is one of the biggest challenges middle schoolers and high schoolers face. And it also did, takes the wind out of the parent child, you know, really unpleasant, you know, can I just have 15 more minutes or what about a half hour? You're the worst mom in the world kind of stuff. So we're, we've lost the boundary between home and school in several ways. So we have to rethink how to strengthen the relationships. So we use tech as an ally to strengthen our school home relationships. And, 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 you know, that's some of the exciting work I, you know, I'm doing in schools around the country.
0: It's interesting. I had framed this last question as being about switching from focusing on the parents to the school. And a lot of Mm -hmm. what you ended up talking about really was how schools and parents need to interact or collaborate with each other.
1: Yes, much more. Much more, and you know i think I think one of the things schools are are experiencing is and it's very understandable it's totally understandable, is that parents are much more anxious and they're very anxious about technology and what's on these things, and how do I know if my child really needs to have their phone on, why they're on their Chromebook doing homework, et cetera and one of the things I think schools need to do much more um, uh devote much more time and and uh effort to is parental outreach and education. Because it's it's not realistic to expect all parents to understand what filters are, how to protect your kids from porn pop-ups, how to understand when your kids are conning you, you know, which <laughs> by middle school most kids will do and want to do and and, and try to do, which is developmentally quite normal. And um And also, you know, when new apps come out like Snapchat or Yik Yak or Kick or whatever it is, Vimeo, GarageBand, Musical.ly, you know, it's helpful for parents to hear from the school. Here's what it is. Here's what's good. Here's what's not so good. Here's the age it's recommended for. Here are some examples of kids who are using it well. Here are some examples we've seen of kids getting in trouble with it, you know, and, and certainly bring it to parents attention if there's an age requirement. So there's there's more uh work to be done in the digital, digital age uh in educating parents and getting them to the place where they feel less like immigrants in their kids, you know, brave new world.
0: Yeah, it sounds like uh, maybe in part because kids are using the same technology in home and in school, or bringing their phones back and forth, and because the technology, as you pointed out, develops so rapidly, yes. I really couldn't expect any individual parent to keep up with it all.
1: Right? No, only you know the parents who keep up with it are the parents whose work teaches them to or requires it of them. They, they're very tech savvy. Um. And, you know, there there are some parents who are really good at using Google, going to sites like Common Sense Media, going to safetykids.net, going to, you know, some of the wonderful uh, sites online that can teach you as a parent how to parent better, you know, and be more savvy about all this. Um, but, you know, one of the other things that I would say when you ask me what's changed because of technology for children, for me, the most... Um, oh, I don't know, overwhelming and sad uh, finding in the research when I interviewed a 1,000 children between the ages of 4 and 18 and then the 250 kids between the ages of 18 and 30 was how consistently, it didn't matter whether a child was 2 or 6 or 12 or 22, how consistently kids of all ages talked about feeling so frustrated at home when they need their parents and their parents are digitally distracted. Mm-hmm. And that's something that is really important for parents to understand. And it's very hard. And when I work with kids, I, I was at a wonderful school in Connecticut uh, two days ago. I was working with the fifth fifth and sixth graders and seventh and eighth graders under the high school kids too. You know, I help them understand neurologically what's going on for their parents. You know, parents, kids, and ask me all the time, like, why do my parents text and drive? And then we say it's so dangerous. And then they get mad and they say, this is work. Be quiet. I'm an expert driver. Don't be rude. Mm-hmm. You know, and some parents say, oh, honey, you're so right. Take this away from me. You know, and then some say, okay, you finish. You text for me. You know, <laughs> but <laughs> when I explain to their these kids, because it's very baffling, you know, they're doing the right thing. They're saying, this is not safe. I don't feel safe. And that's what we teach them in school to do, right? You know, when you're around somebody doing something risky or unkind, be an upstander, say something. And then their parents, by and large, more often than not, get angry at them. So I teach them about what happens to our brains when we're texting and why everything seems urgent and why, you know, the more primitive part of your brain hijacks your prefrontal cortex and why we reach for our phones and the bad stimulants and all that stuff. But most of all, I want to reassure the kids, too, that their parents, of course, they love them, even though it doesn't feel like it. You know, and and kids talk so often and and often using the same examples uh, about how they just feel like they're boring to their parents. They're not interesting. You know, your parent comes to pick you up. They get in the car and they're talking to somebody else on Bluetooth. You know, that Mm. hurts. It hurts. So I think as parents also, we have to really kind of push the pause button and rethink and reboot how we use technology with our children as well.
0: It sounds to me like it really puts the lie to this idea that because kids today have only grown up using this technology that it feels totally normal to them. I mean, no, it sounds like yeah. you're you're saying kids have an innate sense that there is something wrong, not wrong with it, but that feels wrong in their relationship with their parents when their parents are acting this way.
1: Well, they say it feels wrong, and it is wrong. Because at times it is you know a child you know kids will say things like you know i I'm, I'm so grateful for mom to my mom and my dad, you know they work so hard, and I'm so proud of them, and you know, I get to go and a great to a great school, and you know we, we we go on vacations and they're really special and wonderful, but it's also really awful and hurtful, and it makes me mad when we're on the ski lift, and I have to say to my dad, "Come on, Dad, can you please not text when we're on the ski lift?" You know, is there any time like family stuff comes first? Mm. And, you know, the, ki- the kids are right in some of those circumstances. And, you know, we have to be more transparent and say this is work, this isn't work. But by, by, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, kids know whether it's work or not sometimes, especially when we're fudging. And we you really have to, you know, we too, just like children, need to learn how to use their um, notifications to put up do not disturb to use apps like freedom you know freedom from distractibility to use circle time themselves parents need to do the same thing
0: that's really really very uh, insightful and um, you know t- touched a little bit on the impact of technology on relationships for children and preparing for this I had made a long list of potential impacts we've just really Skim the surface of many of them. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we could keep keep talking i mean one one that comes to mind is there's been so much press attention lately to uh, I think it's fair to call it epidemic of anxiety and depression among mm-hmm. teenagers, yep. and I'm sure you're much more familiar with the the research than I am, but I have seen it linked specifically to technology use,
1: yes. Well, in, in my research, um, I have seen it linked specifically and certainly in my practice as a therapist to technology use. But I think there are other reasons kids are very anxious today. And I think, you know, when you look at things that are going on in the world, it is a pretty scary world. And then when you have a president, he uses this technology as a tool to tweet hate and lies and racist and sexist Things—the very things we're teaching kids and working so hard to teach them how to be good digital citizens. You know, the world's topsy-turvy when grown-ups are getting away doing this stuff, and here we are telling kids, you know, be an upstander, don't do this, etc. Everywhere I go, children ask me, you know, if we would get kicked out of school or sent home or have a DC, a disciplinary, you know, committee meeting if we did some of the things we see the grown-ups doing. It, and this is serious. It's really serious. You have to wonder, you know, what is going on. And you know, the 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 other causes of anxiety are are the sense that, you know, the things that used to be uh taken for granted um or securities we used to think we had, whether it's, you know, related to this new tax bill or to the immigrant situation immigrant laws and or, um, what's happening with the economy and the bigger divides between the haves and have, not, have nots? Kids are very savvy and we live in a new saturated world. And, and, you know, those things cause anxiety too. And they're very real and they're very real when their parents are very anxious about their own family's safety and security. But there is also no question that kids live with a very, very different kind of social anxiety than than we grew up having. And one of the biggest differences for kids today is that when we went to school, the drama happened at school. And then you go home, and home is kind of boring. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, my parents, you know, your parents are nice, they're lovely, they'll ask you a few questions, you know, you, you talk on your phone you know, to your best friend. But it was kind of a quiet sanctuary. Now, kids have the experience of going to school where the grown-ups actually pay often more attention to them than the grown-ups at home do. And then they go home, and they're on two or three devices, and they are connected to every kid in their school if they want to be, and people all around the world, and they're watching funny or icky YouTube videos, and they're... Struggling with what they call what we've termed FOMO, fear of missing out. And the pressure and the anxiety that comes with wanting to know who's saying what, who's doing what, what's trending. And the fear that you're going to, someone's going to tag you in an embarrassing picture or not tag you in a party picture is huge. And, I mean, that's just the tip of sort of the source of anxiety. But we've seen a spike in general anxiety, social anxiety, perfectionism, social avoidance, all sorts of things that are tied to the very image-based and social media, social networking site-based, you know, hours and hours and hours that kids spend online when they're home. They spend more hours. Some kids spend more hours multitasking, which of course doesn't imply they're doing everything equally well, but on several screens at once, than any other activity in their life, including sleep. I think that was the Pew Research study mm-hmm. that that said that. Now, that's that is that is a phenomenally radical change in the experience of being adolescents at a time in development where it's hard enough without all this stuff. Now, let me speak to the flip side of that, because there's always good and bad. For kids who are growing up in families where their families are rejecting of who they are, whether it's their sexual fluidity or their political beliefs or whatever, um, being able to connect to people who validate them, it can be life-saving. So it's not all bad what kids are doing online. Uh, the majority of it is actually good. You know, the research co- that I know comes down to about, you know, somewhere between 60 and 80% is either boring, stupid, friendly, helpful, life-saving. It's just that the bad stuff can be really bad.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate the kind of balanced perspective you're providing. I I know certainly in the early years of the internet, I I remember most of the message that was going out from thinkers and education and pundits was I found very one-sided, you know, covered mm-hmm. what were what were real benefits of internet and computer use. But mm-hmm. uh without Without talking about the other side, which now we see is really, really real.
1: Yeah, it's very real. It's very real. And, um, you know, my experience in talking, especially talking to middle schoolers, but especially high schoolers, you know, I'm standing in front of, you know, four or five hundred kids sometimes. When I just give them research in a thoughtful way and say to them, look, you're the boss of your brain. You know, you're, you can outsmart anything your parents will do, <laughs> although the circle makes it harder. Um, most parents don't want to do that with their high school kids. But, you know, it, it's really up to you to, to think about, you know, are you developing your creative, cognitive, social capacities? Are you protecting your future? You know, are you protecting your ability to fall in love And have a tender, loving, wonderful, you know, intimate relationship. Because you need to do that if that's what you want. And I think those are conversations we just need to have so much more with children. And especially with adolescents and treat them like, you know, the young, thoughtful people they are.
0: I think this is a a good segue into um, talking about the perspective of Children, let's say, focus on adolescents in particular. We started talking mostly about parents, then, then uh, educators, and not really addressing the children themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder, from your work, you just gave a little taste of you know what you say to children. I wonder what what other perspective or advice or suggestions you could give to any adolescent, say, who are struggling with any of these issues who have an awareness that they want things to change in a positive direction, you know, what would you say to them?
1: Um, Oh boy. That's, it's a big a, that's question. A big, I know <laughs> it's a big question. Well, you know, it's, it, it kids are using, um, screen based communications to, you know, figuratively or metaphorically say hi to somebody that they might not feel confident saying hi to face to face the most important thing is then to do it in the hallway at school and to follow up on it and not to let a uh, prolonged text talk uh, replace uh, human voice-to-voice talk. And um, it's there's set. We communicate so differently online, particularly in texting than we do when we're with a person face to face and it's, you have to explain that to kids because to them, it just feels the same. You know, I pick up my phone, I'm texting. It's, what's the difference between talking to you? Mm-hmm. And, and there are a lot of differences. There are differences in our, uh, capacity for e- empathy. And, uh, we take risks when we are texting that we usually don't, wouldn't take face to face. And we lose our filter disappears. And so all sorts of, all, you know, when you teach them sort of the neurological implications of some of this, then, invite them to think about you know what makes for really good friendships you know what what is it what is a good friendship what what it makes a relationship feel really precious to you and how do you develop those capacities to be vulnerable and you know one of the saddest things i heard from the 18 to 30 year olds when i talked to them is they're saying you know uh we're so connected, we can text, you know, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., it doesn't matter, but we're really bad at falling in love. You text, hey, what's up? You know, that's a booty call. You do not even go for <laughs> a drink, you know, and, and, and that's very different from saying to somebody, you know, I really like you because I really want to hang out more. I want to get to know you more. You know, or, or calling a friend and saying, hey, I'm really sad. Do you think you could come over? You know, it's 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 those huge hard moments of mature vulnerability and authenticity that are so critical for for people having really you know good friendships and relationships. And we need to encourage that and create it and make spaces for it. You know, a, a lot of my work in schools, going back to that for a sec, is to really change advisory. And really rethink, you know, are we creating sanctuaries and safe places for kids to talk about themselves and what goes down online and to use the language they use online in talking about what goes down online in school? You know, there's such a big disconnect between the way kids communicate online and at school. And yet very few schools allow for kids to, in an authentic way, talk about all this stuff. That's so hard, you know, teaching them the art of difficult conversations, talk teaching them about, uh, you know, love and and uh, sort of the the um, pretend you don't care Olympics and Mm -hmm. all that stuff that are, you know, dynamics that are just hurtful to kids and they want out of it that, you know, most of, most of them want out of it. Most of, you know, somewhere between 60 plus kids want really good intimate relationships. They're not hooking up. That's all very exaggerated. Um, and you need to tell them that because then they won't feel pressure to do things that they absolutely don't want to do.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you talk about the need to be able to engage in those hard conversations or interactions I mean before, uh, all of the online communication to a large extent, kids didn't have any choice but to engage in those face to face
1: that's right. you would meet somebody you would meet up, you'd have pizza, you'd bring your friends for cover you know <laughs> but, <laughs> but you'd meet up and and you know now you know I think we see signs some of the social anxiety i mean there are many reasons this college culture exists, and it's a very, very unhealthy one, but you know by the time for many kids not all kids but some kids when they go off to college they they pregame and you know do shots of alcohol and and then you know kind of hook up and because they don't know how to flirt and how to just hang out and how to feel how to manage the the excitement and the awkwardness of meeting people in a you know in a social context And we are really letting our kids stand in that way. I think it's pretty serious. Mm -hmm. I
0: mean, part of what we're talking about indirectly is just the need for there to be this dialogue, but also guidance across the generations Mm -hmm. instead of there being such a divide where kids and adolescents are kind of trying to figure out everything about how to live on their own.
1: Yes, I think that's, that's very true. You know, it's so ironic. We're such a sex-saturated culture. Kids can, are watching porn, and it's not just pornography. It's pornography. It's violent. It's sadistic. Uh, And it's, you know, uh, pornographic. But we have gag rules about teaching a uh, sex-positive approach to love and intimacy in schools. I mean, we really need to revisit that. Not sure when it's going to happen, mm-hmm. but it would be a good thing if we did. <laughs> you know, the private schools are doing it. Um, and you know, we we really need to rethink what belongs in the core curriculum in the digital age.
0: On that note, uh, you know, I wonder what you see as the, the cutting edge or the next step perhaps in, in, uh, the curriculum or ways of educating, uh, kids uh in the digital age you know is there is there something new on the horizon based on your mm-hmm. experience and your counseling practice and the research that you've done and studied you know is there something and i don't want to say this to be pollyannish but something hopeful on the horizon in light of there's the-
1: there's absolutely there are absolutely hopeful things on the horizons um, i think and you know it depends on where you live and what your state requirements are etc the school, you know, independent schools, private schools have the luxury of being able to create courses, the courses they want. But I would say overall, the biggest and and more, most exciting changes that I am seeing, it, beginning kindergarten through twelfth grade, is that people are, educators are realizing, first of all, that in order to learn cognitively a child's health and well-being is about 50% of the process you cannot learn if you're anxious if you're sleep deprived you know uh, mm-hmm. it, so so more and more schools are 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 listening to the imperative to in a very different way teach health and wellness mindfulness teach kids about tech use and and a uh, and tech health and wellness not just how to protect, you know, your privacy, which is also critically important, but really, you know, how to manage technology for yourself and your friends. Um, and I think digital citizenship and, um, teaching kids how to have courageous conversations or difficult conversations around issues of diversity and equity and inclusion. And certainly more and more schools are teaching young people about the signs of anxiety and how to help a friend when they have it and teaching them a lot more about adolescent development um, so that they can help one another out and get help sooner when they, if they should be, you know, experiencing some psychological distress and I think some of the, you know, what I see schools doing more and more, it's certainly the work I'm doing in schools, is schools are developing a, a class that kids take every year that's just as important as math and science or social studies. And it's about leadership and health and well-being. And it combines a whole bunch of stuff. Ethics, character education, um, philosophy. You know, and, and I think so many of our models of education, rote memory, um, you know, what we used to think kids absolutely need to know are, are actually kind of outdated. They don't need to know a lot of the things, but they do need to know how to be a good person. Mm. And they need a lot of help learning how to relate and a lot of help learning how to use technology in pro social ways rather than harmful and antisocial ways. And they need a lot of help learning how to stay healthy when so many hours are potentially on screens and and how to manage those tensions between life online and life offline. And they need help learning how to stop meanness and social cruelty when they see it both in the hallway and on uh social networking sites. And also how to use these remarkable tools to help the world. I mean the things that kids are inventing and the you know the the startups and the uh the service based learning projects that are making a huge difference in the world that kids are doing today to me are are uh, beyond hopeful they're they're brilliant and they're extremely exciting and impressive and quite real so there are some very wonderful things that that we see schools providing opportunities for children to do to excel and to develop their most creative and healthy and competent selves.
0: That's really great. Thanks for sharing all of those ways in which uh, you and professionals in school and parents are working towards helping kids really achieve their full potential in a healthy way uh, while using technology. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, for all of your writing, for all of the work that you do. Thanks so much for being here.
1: Oh, thank you. It was really fun talking with you. I enjoyed it.
0: Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Dr. Catherine Steiner Adair, author of The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and share the episode with your friends. Those and all other links are in the show notes. And check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with Waylon Lewis, the founder of Elephant Journal, a leading website dedicated to promoting mindful living.